0: Now, I want us to walk through at least the first half of 1 Samuel, chapter 18. If you remember, we took a little break for Christmas, but if you remember back to November, uh, we're in a series of messages that we have titled um, What have we titled it? (laughs) A Royal Mess, so you know better than I do. Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. It's been a big break. And where we left off, David had just defeated Goliath. And we spent a couple of weeks focusing on that. We pick up today, right after that battle, 1 Samuel 18. Let me read. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Now, just so you know who's who, the king is Saul. Uh, David, who will be the king, is right now just a soldier in Saul's army. Jonathan is the son of the king Saul and the king elect, if you will. He likely would be the next king unless something unusual happens. Well, we see here in this first verse that David and Jonathan, an unlikely pair to have a close friendship, but they have a very close friendship. We go on, it says, Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Now, this isn't the focus of the message today, but I really need to stop here and comment on those verses, something that is not in those verses, but people have connected with those verses. These verses describe a relationship between David and Jonathan, a friendship, a close friendship. David loved Jonathan, Jonathan loved David, and there are other verses that also describe this very close relationship. Well, today, if you go to Amazon you can find probably a hundred books in print that assert that what we've just read in these first three verses is a description of a homosexual relationship. And people are writing whole books on this based on these three verses and about a half dozen more verses that speak to this same relationship. And with so many people saying that and with so many people today saying that 1 Samuel 18 verses 1 through 3 is the foundation for churches to embrace homosexuality, I think we should pause and just make some observations. So I did some study on this this week. I really wanted to know where this crazy interpretation, so far as I'm concerned, this unfounded interpretation, where did this come from? And I found that the foundational book was written in 1978 by an Episcopal priest by the name of Tom Horner. The book is Jonathan Loved David. And he asserts in this book that this describes a homosexual relationship. Now, I read the book this week. Uh, It wasn't a long book, uh, but I read it. Every page of it, smoke came out of my ears as I read it. And so far as I can tell, and I spent way too much time researching this this week. That is the very first suggestion in print uh, that anybody ever made that this was a homosexual relationship. There was a fiction book written in 1922 in French uh, that uh, told a story of a homosexual relationship, but it didn't purport that uh, that's what the Bible said. They just used those characters in that book. And so, Tom Horner's book has really become the foundation of all of these other books and all these other sermons that assert that the Bible supports a homosexual relationship. And so, I, um, in reading Horner's book, there are 222 citations in that book. And I went through every single citation, and he never cites any source that agrees with him on this subject. And so the best I can tell he's the first person who said it. Now he says that it is such an obvious thing when you read first Samuel 18:1 through 3, I'll let you judge how obvious that is. It's such an obvious thing that we now can base this whole new theology on those what he calls obvious truths. Now, the first thing I would note here is that these events happened in about 1005 BC. They were recorded around 930 BC. Uh, Tom Horner wrote his book in 1978. Uh, So there are about, if you do your math, there are about 3000 years Between when this happened and was recorded and when Mr. Horner uh, made this obvious observation that this is a homosexual passage and a homosexual relationship. There have been literally thousands of books written in those 3,000 years on Saul and David and the book of 1 Samuel, and he is the first person to notice this very obvious truth what is the basis of his claim? And the reason I'm spending time on this is, like I said, this has become his argument has become the foundation of all of these arguments today. Well, I'll read you his basis in his own words. This is on page 25 in his book. He says, there is no need to point out that musicians, now let me, let me just tell you, this, this guy has two PhDs, Uh, He is, uh, it was at the time, he's deceased now, but he was a very high ranking person in the Episcopal church. And this is what he says. There is no need to point out that musicians very often possess the kind of temperament that makes them attractive to others and equally as often to respond to the attraction they, they elicit. Here's what he says. David was a musician David played the guitar, uh, an ancient form of the guitar, the lyre. So obviously he's a musician, he's a guitar player, he's homosexual. And that's the, I'm not exaggerating, that's the foundation of the book that is the foundation of all these other books that, uh, that teach us that the Bible normalizes homosexual relationships. Now, without spending an hour on this, because I really do want to preach on something else, uh, I want to um, I want to give you some guidelines for Bible interpretation that'll that'll help you to uh, you know deal with this uh, specific focus, but also any other kind of um, unusual interpretation of Scripture. Let me give you three quick guidelines. Uh, number one, the perspicuity of Scripture. And I just like to say that word, makes you sound smart if you want to write that down. The perspicuity of Scripture, which means this, the Bible generally means what it seems like it means. That's common sense, right? The Bible means what it seems like it means. God meant For the Bible to be read and understood by regular people with regular intellects and with a regular understanding of language and history. Now, I think there are value in teachers and scholars and experts and language experts. Certainly, we benefit from those people, but the Bible was not written for those people. It was written for us. It was written for regular people to understand it and read it. It is not written in code. It is not written as a mystery to be solved. It says what it says, and it means what it obviously means. When I want to convey some truth to my three daughters, I say it to them as plainly as I can. I don't ever hide it in a riddle. I don't ever try to trick them into hearing something different than what is the truth that I want to convey. I just say it plainly to them. And when God speaks to his children, he says it plainly. He doesn't stutter. He is a great communicator and he means what he says. So what do these verses mean? I'll just go through a few of them quickly. When God instituted the family, he said it this way, Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And so God established what is that intimate relationship, what is that foundation of a family, one man and one woman. Jesus believed that this was the foundation and he quoted this verse in Matthew 19.6 the Bible means what it seems like it means. Leviticus 18, 22. This is the Old Testament law, the moral law, the same law that says, do not murder. It says, you are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. The Bible means what it seems like it means. Leviticus twenty thirteen. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, In the New Testament, marriage is still honored by God and is always, without exception, described as an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. Additionally, the New Testament repeats and reinforces the prohibitions that we read about homosexuality in the Old Testament. I'll give you just two passages. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. The Bible means when it seems like it means. 1 Corinthians 6 9 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males will enter the kingdom of God. The Bible means what it means. Now there's more to say about this. The Bible talks about treating people with kindness and love. The Bible talks about uh, balancing tolerance with... um, Well, a refusal to to embrace tolerance with showing the love of Christ to people. I've preached on this, and at noeldeer.com, I have a resource page for every sermon. If you go to today's uh, resource page, it'll list uh, two or three sermons that I've preached uh, on this in recent uh, months. Uh, But here's the point, the perspicuity of Scripture. The Bible means what it seems like it means. And if someone has to write 50 pages of linguistic analysis and anthropological reassessment and hysterocritical reinterpretation to say that the Bible means something different than what it seems like it means, then you just need to run away from that person. The Bible means what it means. So that's the perspicuity of scripture. Next, let me talk about the transparency of scripture. The Bible never shies away from revealing uncomfortable, embarrassing, or scandalous information even about its Bible heroes. So when you read these books about uh, how the church should embrace the homosexual lifestyle, uh, one of the things that it says, because in, in these books they, they've got to deal with the obvious question that there's no example in the Bible of that being endorsed, embraced in any way And so here's what they say. Well, the Bible wouldn't say something. The writers of the Bible would not have written something that would have embarrassed a Bible hero. And so all of that has been whitewashed from the Bible. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is the Bible, right? When you read the Bible, and the Bible writes about the lives of these Bible heroes, what does it tell us? Well, it airs all kind of dirty laundry. If you look to Moses, Moses, the greatest political leader in the Bible, perhaps the greatest political leader in history, uh, the Bible tells us that he was a man with a violent temper Moses was a man who once lost his temper and murdered somebody. Moses had an inferiority complex. Moses got in a terrible fight with his wife and they put it in the Bible. Moses rebelled against God in multiple occasions so much that God would not allow him into the promised land. The Bible tells the story of Moses and it tells the good, the bad, and the ugly. Take David, for instance. You're probably even more familiar with that story. David's the greatest worshiper in the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about David? It tells us that he's a man after God's own heart, but it also tells us that he was guilty of adultery. It tells us that he conspired for murder. It tells us that he was dishonest. It tells us that he was engaged in a cover-up. It tells us that he was a horrible parent. Listen, if, if David were homosexual. There's no whitewashing in the Bible. The Bible would just say it. And we see the evidence of that in all of the things the Bible does say. And so that is the transparency of Scripture. Finally, let me say a word about the normalcy of Scripture. The Bible defines what is normal. Now, Tom Horner and the other writers say it's impossible. Listen to this. It's impossible that David and Jonathan could have a relationship where they loved one another, but did not engage in sexual conduct. They said that would be impossible. Well, I think that comment probably says more about Tom Horner than it does about David and Jonathan. Uh, But listen, the Bible defines normal. We don't look at how people live their lives today and then judge the Bible by what society says is normal. No, the Bible is the standard. The Bible is the level. The Bible is the plumb line. Our world has so perverted the word love that it's true that today often that word has no category for two people loving each other but not engaging in some sexual union. But that doesn't mean it's not normal. It might not be common, but it's normal because the Bible declares, defines normal. We will always err if we try to understand the Bible by making it fit into our understandings, experiences, and preferences. Like what we experience, like our culture, like our preference is the standard through which we interpret the Bible. No, the Bible is the standard by which we understand our experiences, our preferences, and our culture. Uh, Well, I don't want to preach about that, so let's continue to read. Verse 4. Then Jonathan removed the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his belt, his bow. Jonathan was, in effect, transferring his status as king-elect to David. Verse five, David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. And so Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. Verse six, as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, with three stringed instruments. This is, this This resonates with me because this is what my family does when I come home every afternoon. And as they dance, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. Now that was never meant to slight Saul. It says, in fact, that they came out to sing it for Saul. Even if they would have thought it, they wouldn't have said it. Uh, that'd be the quickest way to lose your life. Uh, They're just celebrating the victory that God has given us through Saul and and through Saul's men, including David. But Saul decided that those words were an attack on his value. Uh, Men, we do this. This is a weakness. We'll come back to that. Uh, Look at verse eight. Saul was furious. Furious, furious, notice that word, and resented, resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The four key words there are fury, he was furious, resentment, he resented, he complained, Complaint, and he was jealous, jealous. Uh, look at verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit came from God, uh, came powerfully on Saul. And he began to rave inside the palace and David was playing the lyre as usual. Uh, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it thinking I'll pin David to the wall, which means I'll kill David. But David got away from him twice. That's interesting. David got away from him once. And then David came back and sang another song. Uh, at least another song, and and then had to escape again. So at this point, we ought to just stop and ask the obvious question. Why is Saul mad at David? What has David done to Saul? Nothing. David has only done what Saul has told him to do. Saul has sent him out to uh, fight some fights and win some battles, and he has done exactly that. Uh, I know that sometimes... Our anger and our resentment and our hurt come from real injury. But oftentimes, that anger and resentment comes more from something in us than something in the person with whom we're angry. And that was the case here. Now, I want to stop reading in verse 11. uh, But in my studies, I went all the way through the end of... uh, of uh, the book, uh, first Samuel. And I noted all of the different expressions, all the different emotions, all the different ways that Saul expressed anger at, uh, David tried to kill him on multiple occasions, uh, tried to ridicule him, took things away from him. Uh, and I, I've put all of this on my resource page. If you want to go through and there are about, uh, 20 other ways that, uh, Saul expressed his anger toward David. So here's the point, Saul was consumed with anger for the rest of his days, for the rest of his life. He was consumed with anger and resentment and jealousy and bitterness. It characterized him. So what were the results of that? What did that anger do in Saul's life? Well quickly, number one, it, it led him to irrational behavior. It it turns out he actually tried to spear David to death three different times each time after asking David to come play soothing music to calm him down. That's just irrational. Saul forfeited a relationship with his eldest son and his eldest daughter over his anger at Saul. So there was this irrational behavior. Irrational behavior. The next thing that you see here is that there were irreversible damages. Uh, Once these emotions, and this should scare us, once these emotions took root in Saul's life, he couldn't escape. In fact, if you read the next several chapters, and we're going to see some of this in our series as we move forward, there are two different occasions when Saul actually realizes he is wrong and he apologizes, he confesses. And he says he's going to change, and it seems like he is very genuine when he says those things. But each time it's just a short moment, and then Saul's right back where he was. See, when we let anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness take root in our lives, there may be a point when we're just so stuck we can't get out. In fact, Jesus talks about this. Matthew 18, 34 and 35, he's, he's wrapping up a parable about someone who has refused to forgive And he says his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed, which if you look at the whole story here was impossible. So this is a perpetual torment. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless each one of you learns to forgive his brother. And so we can get stuck. There can be irreversible damage in our anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness. And then finally Saul forfeited his life. He forfeited his life in that he died unnecessarily. It wouldn't have happened that way had he partnered with David. But he also forfeited the life, his life on the days that he lived. It just consumed him. Anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness will do the same thing to me and to you. It will consume our lives. It will rob us of joy and peace. It will destroy marriages, ruin families. It'll take us to places that we can never Get back from. So, what do we do? How can we protect ourselves from anger, from resentment, from jealousy and bitterness? Well, the answer one word is the gospel. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel. And I want to show that to you here because I think this is revolutionary. You know, we could give you, you know, six steps to overcome anger, you know, count to 10 and put a rubber band around your hand. I don't know. But you know, the the Bible answer is the gospel. Now, let me tell you what the gospel is in case you don't know. The gospel is simply the, the good news that though we are all guilty of sin and that sin has separated us from God and from the good things that come from God, life, joy, peace, everything good comes from God. Though we're guilty of sin, and that sin separates us from God, and there's nothing we can do to overcome that sin, Jesus lived a perfect life for us and died to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can be right with the Father, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus deserves it and has given it to us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, How does the gospel help us to deal with anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness? Let me tell you three ways. Number one, gospel contentment. Gospel contentment. Anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness grow in the soil of discontentment. We will experience, we are likely to experience anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness. When we start saying things like this, I deserve to be treated better. I deserve to have more than I have. I deserve to have a better job. I deserve to have better health. I deserve more happiness. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve more money. I deserve more respect. When we start with those statements and we dwell on those It is from that discontentment with life that anger and resentment and jealousy and bitterness, those things come from our discontentment. Now, how does the gospel help us with that? Well, the gospel says this you don't deserve any of those things, and neither do I. You know what I deserve? I deserve to be separated from God and from all the good things that come from God, which includes life, which includes peace and joy and fulfillment and and, and all of those things. That's that's what I deserve. I deserve to be fully separated from God because I've sinned against him. I don't deserve any good thing. You know, everything belongs to the Lord, right? Right? And it is that same Lord against whom we have sinned and rebelled. Who are we to go to God and say, I deserve it. I deserve what you have. None of us deserve anything. That's what the gospel says. But the gospel goes on to say that Jesus, through his life and death, though we didn't deserve it, gives us all that we need. Jesus gives us everything. The gospel says that as a child of God, we have life, eternal life. We can have joy and peace and freedom from fear and we have inherited the riches of heaven. I don't deserve anything, but God has given me everything, everything. See, it's this gospel contentment. I'm content with life because God has given me so much I, des- I don't deserve So when you feel these emotions, uh, anger, resentment, jealousy, bitterness, when you feel these emotions welling up, let me give you a prayer to say. And you'll find these on the resource page, but I want us to do a repeat after me. In both services, even if you're at home, I want you to repeat after me, okay? Can we do this? Heavenly Father... The foolish, part of me I the foolish part of me thinks I deserve better, but the truth, is, the truth is I am a rebellious sinner. All I deserve is separation from you and all good things. So I, will stop saying I deserve better. so I will stop saying I deserve better. Instead, I will rejoice that in Christ Instead, I you have given me what I do not deserve. I rejoice that in Christ you have given me Forgiveness, Forgiveness. grace and mercy, mercy. peace, Peace. and the riches of heaven. heaven. I rejoice because in Christ, I Christ. I I have everything I could ever want or need. I rejoice because Christ is enough for me. You know how David said it? Psalm 16, five, Lord, you are my portion. What he says is, Lord, you're enough. If we can embrace gospel contentment, we won't have the anger, the resentment, the jealousy, the bitterness. I, I, I love something that Dave Ramsey, I think he was the first person that said this, and you've probably heard it. Some of you I hear say it often. I love this. Somebody will say, how are you doing? What would Dave Ramsey say? Better than I deserve. And you know what? You are doing better than you deserve. And so am I. That is gospel contentment. And that is the antidote to anger, to resentment, to jealousy and bitterness. Now, the second one is gospel acceptance. Now, not only do these emotions, anger and resentment and bitterness, jealousy, not only do they grow in the soil of discontent, but they're often prompted, they're initiated by rejection. So this was true of Saul. Saul's anger started when he thought people admired David more than they admired him. He he got angry when he thought that people didn't appreciate him. They didn't value him. They didn't recognize his achievements. It's true of us. Rejection, ridicule, criticism. They can often stir up. You know this. Criticism, ridicule, rejection can easily bring anger and resentment, jealousy and bitterness. It's amazing to me even as a man old enough that that I should be immune from this, I am amazed at how one little comment, even unfounded sometimes, can bring one little criticism, can bring that anger resentment. Uh, I'm a leader by choice. Uh, I, I know that leaders uh, just by the nature of the job, get criticized. Uh, I I know that when I decide something or suggest something that there are at least a hundred people who think, well, I would have done it a different way. Uh, uh, for instance, Easter at the Coliseum, I I know, (laughs) but I'm a big boy. I can handle it. I could have chosen a different path if I didn't want this. But i tell you, even as a pastor who's done this for a very, very long time, I'm amazed. Just one little negative comment. I'll be more transparent than I should be, but somebody said something that I at least perceived as criticism about a month ago. I'm not even sure it was criticism. I think it was, but it might not have been. It's not something of any consequence, really, but I've been mad about it every single day for a month. Um. I really have. I thought about it every day and uh, that's irrational, right? That's irrational. But see, criticism, rejection, it can, it can bring up this anger and resentment. So how does the gospel help with this? Well, the gospel says that I may not be loved and admired by the crowd, by the family, by the spouse, by the boss, by the co-workers. But I am loved and accepted by the God of the universe, the sovereign creator, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because he sees me through the life of Christ. That's the gospel. And God fully loves me, fully accepts me. Let me share with you two verses. There, there are a hundred verses I could share here, but I, I want to pick two that might not initially come to your mind. First Peter five, six, and seven for this week, this is my favorite verse. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that you may, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Now let me go through it slowly. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That means Let's get our esteem from God, not from others, but from God, so that he may exalt you. I don't need people to exalt me. I don't need people to tell me I'm good, I'm valuable, I'm whatever. He will exalt me. And you know what? He'll exalt me at the proper time. When it fits his purposes for his kingdom, he will exalt me so I can cast all of my cares or criticisms on him. Why? Because he cares for me. You see, this gospel acceptance will, uh, will, will take the sting from the anger and the bitterness. Uh, another verse I think of is Psalm 118.6. Just the first part of that verse, listen to this. The Lord, these are the words of David, by the way. The Lord is for me. There may not not be a lot of people for me. I know some people aren't for me, and that's okay, I'm probably not for them. But the Lord is for me see the gospel acceptance, uh, will lift us past the envy and the, and the anger and the resentment. I tell people, uh, who come to me and say, pastor, I'm, I'm really struggling to get over this. I'm so angry. Uh, you might write this down. If you struggle with this Romans eight thirty one through 39, you read that passage slowly every day, uh, for a week, uh, you will know gospel acceptance. Well, let me share with you the third thing quickly, uh, gospel freedom. Uh, now you may be thinking, pastor, you don't know how badly somebody has hurt me. Uh, I have a very good reason for my anger, my resentment and my hurt. If you just knew what they had done, listen, here's one of the most remarkable things about the gospel of Jesus Christ a person who is not a child of God, by my understanding, they ought to be angry and they ought to be resentful. If you're not a child of God, then yes, you ought to be angry. Life is a zero-sum game. And if somebody hurts you, then they should be hurt back. That's the only fair thing. And you should be angry and resentful until justice is done. I can't think of any other way that a lost person Uh, Can see that. I know that's a miserable life, but it's reasonable. But for a person who is a child of God, listen to this. You and I, we have unprovoked sin against a holy God. We have so sinned against God that we deserve separation from God and death. Yet God, for no reason in us, has through Christ chosen to forgive us undeserved forgiveness from a holy God. And I'll tell you, church, the scales of justice have already been tipped so far in my direction How could I ever hold anger and resentment against another person? Because of the gospel, because I know how much I've been forgiven of, I have the freedom to just let it go when somebody sins against me. Now, a lost person... If your lost neighbor comes to see me next week and says that somebody did something bad to them and how should they handle it, I'd say you just ought to be mad about it. I don't know anything better to do. You've been hurt. But you know what I'd say to a believer? I'd say, you know, you're right. They did something bad to you. But what you did to God was much worse. And He has forgiven you of so much. How could you hold these people? and not forgive you see a lost person who has not been forgiven If someone takes something or does something then demanding justice is the only recourse they have but for a child of god if you hurt me or you take something from a child of god we have the freedom to say it's okay i've already gotten so much undeserved forgiveness and blessing that's fine Now, I know that that's not as easy to do as it is to say, but I want you to see the logic there. We have complete freedom in the gospel to let hurts go. And for some of us, that would be the greatest step we could ever take in 2023. To quit making our case for why we are right and the other person is wrong. To quit demanding that the other person pay for what he has done and say, I have received so much unmerited favor, so much forgiveness from God, I have the freedom to forgive you. That would change the world for some people today. Can I tell you something that happened a bunch of years ago? I was in my very first church as a senior pastor. I didn't know much. I don't know much now, but I really didn't know anything then. And so there was a young couple in the church pregnant with their first child. Don and I, my wife and I were friends with them. And, uh, I was pastoring in rural Mississippi. The closest baby hospital was about an hour away. It's hard to believe there are places like that, uh, in America today, but, uh, that's where we lived. And so I remember when this family, uh, went to the, uh, hospital because, uh, they, uh, They thought she was in labor. Uh, We went with them, not with them, but we went to the hospital too. And we were there with them. And, uh, you know, they're all excited, going to give birth. And uh, the doctor said that uh, it's not time. And that happens, I know. I think that happened with us uh, when our first child, a time or two. And so they said, go back home. It's not time. And so they did. And the baby died a couple of days later. Now, I don't know. I don't know whose fault, anybody's fault. I don't know. And I'm not, I don't even have an opinion on that. Uh, but they believed it was the negligence. They believed it was negligence. So they reach out to an attorney uh, and the attorney uh, believed it was negligence. So again, I, I don't know. And so I'm not telling you one way or the other. I, I don't know. I didn't know then. I don't know now. What uh, the attorney said, we'll win this lawsuit. Uh, hands down, there were terrible things that were done or not done. I don't remember. And this will be an open and shut case, but it's still going to take a year or so. And so it's going through the process. Well, in the meantime, this family, this uh, man and woman, husband and wife, they're just, they're just torn up and they are angry and they are rehearsing every day. They are rehearsing every hour of every day, all of the terrible things that doctor did to them. And if you got anywhere near them, you'd hear the list and they were justifying how it was the doctor's fault, not their fault, that they did what they were supposed to do. And the doctor didn't do what he was supposed to do. And they just were cauldrons of bitterness and anger. Well, uh, their marriage started to fail. Uh, They were one of the happiest married couples I ever knew, but their marriage starts failing about nine months later, 10 months later. And they came to see me. Uh, They're still expecting to win this giant award, I don't know, millions of dollars or something. And um, they didn't come to see me this time about that. Uh, They just came to tell me that, um, well, they'd come to the end and they just couldn't live with each other any longer. And so we talked for a little bit, and and I could recognize that uh, it wasn't just that they couldn't live with each other any longer. They were so eaten up by bitterness, they couldn't live with anybody any longer. They were just hateful, miserable, bitter people. And I remember, I'm, I'm not a very good counselor, and I don't ordinarily, well, I told them to do something. Uh, and I'm not saying you should never sue a doctor. Or, uh, that's a whole nother sermon. But I looked to them, and I, I well, I would call their names, but I, I won't. Uh, but I looked to them, and and um, I said, you know, you need to drop the lawsuit today. You need to call the attorney and call it off, because whatever amount of money you're going to get, you're still going to be miserable your problem is not that you don't have a million dollars. Your problem is that you're so eaten up with this anger that it's ruining your marriage and it's ruining your life. And this scared me because it's the first time and maybe the last time in my ministry, somebody did something I told them to do. Uh, But they called the attorney that afternoon and called it off. The attorney was pretty upset as you can imagine, but, um, God restored their peace and their joy. And then God restored their marriage. And then God gave them a child. And then God gave them another child. But listen, it was all because they recognized maybe at the last moment their gospel freedom. Now they're convinced to this day that they were mistreated in the hospital. I don't know. But they recognized that what God had forgiven them of had so tilted the scales of justice that they could just let it go. And today, they're in a good place because of that gospel freedom. Listen, about 10 years ago or so, the church I served in gave me the greatest gift I'd ever received. Uh, one of the greatest gifts I'd ever received. They gave me a sabbatical one summer, uh, eight or 10 weeks. And I went and read books and walked with the Lord and and fished. I, it wasn't all spiritual, but it uh, uh, probably saved my ministry, probably saved my sanity. I learned so much uh, from that time. But here's the Here's the thing I learned in eight or ten weeks. Uh, I read a book by Alan Kraft that helped me with this. But here's the lesson I learned. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just how we get into the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just how how we get saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is how we live every single day of our lives. How do we overcome anger, resentment, jealousy, and bitterness? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, I pray that those who have not accepted the gospel for salvation, that they will do that today. They will admit that they're guilty of sin and hopeless. But what Christ has done for them on the cross is enough. They'll trust that. Follow Christ as Lord. Father, I pray that for those that are children of God, that we too will claim the gospel today. We too will claim the gospel that says we have more than we deserve. That we are accepted by the King and that we have the freedom to let it go and forgive. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together in both services.